So going back to my scripture, why don't we get stoned to death for cooking on the Sabbath? Well, there are two reasons. We don't have a Sabbath. <laughs> and if we did, that would not apply because that covenant was not with us. That covenant was with these Israelite people mediated through Moses and after his death mediated through the Aaronic priesthood. So Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So those laws and regulations don't apply to us because Jesus Christ has redeemed us from them. So that means for us there is no Sabbath, no requirement to uphold the covenant law of Moses. We live under a better covenant instituted by Jesus Christ on the cross with his blood. So under the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, there was circumcision of the flesh. Under Christ's Covenant, circumcision of the heart. Under the Mosaic Covenant, there were laws on stone, and under Christ's Covenant, laws written on the heart. Under Mosaic Covenant, people were told what they could not do. Under Christ's Covenant, we are told what we can do. Under the Mosaic Covenant, there was external government and regulation, and under Christ's covenant, internal management of ourselves. Under the Mosaic covenant, there was faith in works, i.e. sacrifices. Under Christ's covenant, in his finished work on the cross, is the ultimate sacrifice, and we have our faith in that. So, Jesus himself referred to this at the Last Supper when he took bread and gave thanks, and could we distribute the Thanks for me. Oh. <laughs> Praise God. Brother, better than nobody. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> so Jesus took, took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Jesus himself said that this is a new covenant in his blood. So he did away with the old covenant. Do this and drink it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So these two things that we do, we do in remembrance of him. So the new covenant of which Christ is the mediator and the author and which was confirmed by his blood encompasses all who believe in him and are born again. Which you can refer to in Galatians 4, Hebrews 7 and various other parts of Hebrews. So, just wait for the evidence to be distributed.
So as Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let us take a bread in remembrance of me. And let us drink the cup in remembrance of the new covenant that frees us from the curse of the law and opens the treasures of heaven to those who believe. Canaanites. You know, nine times out of ten, when Christians hear that, they want to run away. 
<laughs> because they haven't got a good answer for it. So uh, this morning, I, I want to um, to give you some some ammunition, if you like, um, some some uh, ability to respond uh, to an accusation like that, because there are some good answers in the Word of God, and uh, we, we need to know them so that we can be able to defend our faith. We're living in days where we need to be able to defend our faith. Amen? Amen. It, it's a really Thank difficult you. time that we're entering in, and uh, you know the, the Christian faith is becoming more and more persecuted. Uh, you know, when, when I got saved 50 years ago, or sometime, anyway, uh, a while ago, um, the, the, you know, the, the Christians were quite well respected. But today, if you stand up and say, hey, you're a Christian, people look at you like, oh, you, you're one of those, you know. And, uh, well, <laughs> it's definitely out there, I can see you. But, uh, so I want to give you some, some, uh, some ammunition, if you like, to be able to respond to those uh, accusations, how we respond to the charges of God's judgment. And so uh, it's really uh, very important that we do that because inevitably that subject comes up. But I would say the first thing that we need to know and understand is God's heart towards us. If we understand God's heart, God loves us and wants to bless us. And that's the basis where we start to, to speak to people about the things of the Lord as we tell them about how much God loves us and what He's done and how He's prepared us um, for that. Um, so He created a paradise, not a concentration camp for us to live in. He created a paradise. And if you look up that word, it means a place of, of, of pleasure and delight. That's what the Garden of Eden was like. It was the most magnificent garden. I know some of you love to work in your garden, but this was the most incredible garden you can ever imagine. There was flowers of every size, shape, and color with the most intoxicating scents. There were these exotic fruits. There was just a massive um, you know, uh, waterfalls and, and standing pools of water, sunrises and sunsets that painted the, the, the sky in magnificent colors. Uh, all our senses were delighted. You know, you, you wake up and you hear the, the dawn chorus. It's a beautiful thing. Or the sound of babbling brooks. That's what it was like in the Garden of Eden. Every sense, smell, eyes, uh, ears, everything. That sense of touch, the, the temperature was just perfect before the fall. Adam, what have you done? Auckland's oh. temperatures, not... <laughs> and so it was beautiful in, in the Garden of Eden. Everything was absolutely perfect. That is... Uh, I mean, we could talk about that, but uh, we'd soon realize that we'd run out of uh, superlative trying to describe the glory of what God has done for mankind. And it was perfect until the day that sin entered it, until the day that man chose to rebel. So when we, get, we should give careful consideration as to why the Lord hates sin. Why does God hate sin? We're going to explore that just for a few seconds, and uh, hopefully we can give you some answers. You see, God did not create man for suffering. But we've experienced 6,000 years of suffering because we haven't done things God's way. And everyone say, Amen. Amen. You see, God's highest will was to bless and to love and to prosper mankind. That was, that was His heart. And it's only when sin came in uh, that, that we've endured the 6,000 years of difficulty because when sin came into the world, uh, it destroyed all that was good and perfect. It perverted and corrupted God's highest good. This is not the world that God originally created. This is a fallen world. 
where God's will is hardly ever done, except by perhaps a, a small minority. So sin is a real travesty. When sin comes into the world, it has caused unspeakable sorrow, pain, suffering, and hardship. Since the dawn of time, every, every time somebody sins, there's heartache. The guy is out for a good time on a Friday night who gets drunk and has a car accident and kills or maims people. Uh, it wasn't such a good time that he was having. You see, when sin enters in, it mars the good and the perfect that God had decided that we should have. And so, God's intention was that we enjoy His highest good. And, but when sin came in, everything started to fall apart. And that's why Jesus came. Aren't you glad Jesus yes. came? Jesus came to restore all that was lost at the fall and then sin. We are blessed with an incredible blessing through Jesus Christ. The covenant uh, that Steve was referring to is the most glorious covenant. I could never go back to the things of the world. You know, I found a, a greater riches and greater blessings in the kingdom of God than I ever found in the world. How about you? Can you say amen? And so, you know, we, we see that Jesus came as an act of love and mercy. To restore that which was fallen. And so whenever you're looking at, at, the, at the, the judgments of man, we need to understand that this was never God's intention that man should go this way. Consider how a beautiful neighbor, peaceful neighborhood um, can change when you have one dedicated lawbreaker come in. You know, one guy who's determined to have loud, raucous music until 3 o'clock in the morning, drunken parties. You know, with uh, uh, and fights that go on all through the night, and you come out and, and there's trash on, on the lawns, and there's rusting cars in the driveway, there's graffiti over the wall, broken windows, man, left unchecked. That can bring a whole neighbourhood down. It it destroys what was peaceful and beautiful by one person's actions. You see, the laws of government are an attempt at restraining sin so that good people can live in peace and safety. That's the purpose behind laws. But you can't legislate righteousness. That's one of the, the major failings of the law. But people say, but that was only one individual. God destroyed an entire nation. Okay? Uh, that they were innocent. Well, whenever anybody says that, you have, a, you have an end to, to speak to that, don't you? Because the Bible says that we all sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't care who you are. You know, if you're honest, you know, we're a sinner. And if they tell you they're not a sinner, the Bible says that they're a liar. So they're sinning. You, you, you win hands down. You know, heads you win, tails uh, uh, they lose. So, you know, when you tell them that, hey, uh, all are sinners come short of the glory of God. Psalm 14 and verses 2 and 3 says this. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone astray. This is God's verdict. They have all gone astray. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Sin is universal. Sin is a universal problem. Every single one of us has, has sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God. And it doesn't matter whether you're a bishop, a pope, a pastor. It doesn't make any difference. We are all sinners. We saved by the grace of Christ. Yes. Amen. And so when we're talking to, to people, we say, hey, listen, we've, we all sin, we, you know, um, and it, you know, that really is a, a terrible thing. We need to understand that there's none righteous, none not one. And that God would be fully justified in destroying every single one of us because we've all broken and violated His laws. Amen. And so God would be just 
and bringing out our destruction if he chose. But God's love and mercy prevents him from doing that. Why? Because the heart of God is that none should perish. God loves you and he loves every single person that has ever been created. They are precious in his sight. And so he doesn't want to bring judgment at all upon us. You know, Ezekiel 33 and verse 11 says this, Say unto them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God's heart knows that he knows that he created us and he knew that we would sin. But there's a, there's a way to restoration. There is hope even if you sin. Can you say amen? amen. Aren't you glad God is gracious? Amen. Because if He was just, just, we'd all have no hope. And so He, he takes no pleasure in, in, in the death of the wicked. God loves the sinner. Remember John 3, 6, God so loves the world. He loves the world. Sinner and saint alike, God loves and takes incredible uh, uh, joy in our creation. But he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So even the most vile, corrupt, and evil person will find mercy and forgiveness if they sincerely repent. I cannot tell you, when I heard those words for the first time, that God was willing to forgive anything and everything I've ever done wrong. Something happened in me. Something broke. I felt this huge weight fall off my shoulders. And I felt as light as a feather. I felt I was floating in, in the air, spinning helplessly in this cloud of glory. Because suddenly I realized that God has forgiven me everything I have ever done wrong. And it was so glory. It was so immense. You know? And that even the most vile and corrupt sinner, which I came close to being, um, could find mercy and forgiveness if they sincerely repent. God assures us of that. He's spoken in Isaiah 55 and verse 7. He says, Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Man, that was me. And he said, Let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's the promise. Of God, We don't have to speculate about it. That's God's promise. If you turn to Him, He will definitely forgive you. Any person seeking mercy and forgiveness will find it. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise pass out. Thank you, Jesus. That's wonderful news. So, let's tighten our focus a little bit because we're dealing with the problem of the Canaanites. Now, the Canaanites are the descendants of Canaan, who uh, were one of, the, one of Noah's sons, or was one of the three sons of Noah, uh, and most of them descended from Ham. Um, and uh, from Ham uh, come the, the Canaanites. And so we read about the descendants of, of, uh, of the Canaanites, and they're found in Genesis chapter 10, verses 15 through 16. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gergeshites, the Hivites, and it goes on to name a whole list of pesticides that we won't go through this morning. <laughs> and so, anyway, we see that in Numbers uh, 13:29 that the Amalekites lived in, the, in in southern Canaan. So that makes them Canaanites. If you're born in New Zealand, you're a Kiwi. 
Okay? There they lived, they were born in Canaan, and so they became Canaanites. Okay? And these people were amongst the most evil, vile, and barbaric people that ever walked the face of the earth. They had never really uh, embraced anything that God had taught them, and they were, they were vile and corrupt. They were even sacrificing their own children. Okay? So, the beauty is that God would even forgive this if they sought Him. The Lord is always patient, kind, long-suffering towards us if only we would turn to Him. God is loving and gracious. So what was the sin of the Amalekites? We're going to look at that because it particularly relates to how uh, God's judgment came, came upon them. And, uh, so they, they, uh, they told us in days gone by that the sin of the, the Amalekites uh, was that they sacrificed their children uh, to the devil. Nowadays, scholars are disputing that. Did you know that? They're disputing that. And experts say it never happened. But it did. And I will give you some evidence to show you, uh, and uh, you can see for yourself. You can make your own judgment. In 1902, the British archaeologist Stuart McAllister uh, had been excavating in Giza. He soon realized he was digging up one of those Canaanite high places uh, where the ancient inhabitants of the city worshipped their gods. Okay? Here we get a picture. You've read about those high places in the Bible. This is actually a picture of one of them. They are huge monumental stones. Uh, and this is what uh, uh, Matt Alistair was looking. So right now, I would like you to put on your Indiana Jones hat. Okay? And we're going to do some archaeology. We're going we're to do some exploring of archaeological evidence. Okay. okay. Maybe time team would be more appropriate for this, this generation. <laughs> but, but anyway, so we're going we're gonna to look at some archaeology this morning and, and see which version of the truth is closer to it. So, just to give you some perspective, here is a, 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 a close-up of the size of these sacred stones that used to mark these places of worship. And over here, we have a, a square stone with, with a hole in it. That was the altar, and that hole was used to catch the blood uh, of the sacrifice. And so, um, so, we find that uh, next to those, those big stones that we've just looked at... Um, there was the, these jars um, uh, of uh, charred remains. We're going to look at the archaeological group. It's, it's pretty disturbing, um, but it shouldn't surprise us because it's in the Bible. You can read about this in the Word of God. Here is the archaeological proof of child sacrifice. I want to say to you, the Bible is a trustworthy document. Absolutely. You can trust it whether it's speaking about science, history, or prophecy. The Bible has never been seriously proved wrong. Never. It's trustworthy. Okay. Over 150 years of archaeological discoveries in the Holy Land demonstrate again and again that the Bible is a trustworthy, reliably historic document. So, here, at, at the base of these pillars, uh, you can see those pillars there, just excavating around here, they, they discovered clay jars. And in the clay jars, there were the, 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 the sacrificial remains of babies. Uh, you can, I, don't, I don't know whether this will give a... Um, okay, no, no, don't disappear on me. Okay. And then... It's falling to pieces in my hands. Anyway, I don't know if you can just make out the skull over here and some of the leg bones over there. Uh, so they burnt these babies and then put them into the jars 
just as the Bible said that, that these people, the Canaanites, would do. And there is the archaeological evidence. It's proof positive. And they were standing at the base of this, uh, this Canaanite place of worship. McMaster, or McAllister, I should say, in his excavation report, says that they found a pit right close by that was full of a jumble of human bones. And right next to it, they found another uh, piece of historical evidence. That is, a, a, they determined a, a, around about a 12 to 13 year old girl who has been sawn in half as an offering to their God. So they murdered her, and there's the, there's the, the skeletal remains that uh, date back to the, the Canaanite worship in that particular place. Right alongside um, the, the skeleton, there were no pictures of this, but they found um, skulls uh, of two young children uh, who had been decapitated, Isis star, and the cut marks uh, were still visible after all these years. This is absolutely positive proof that the Canaanites were sacrificing their children to their God. Absolutely evil. Absolutely evil. And there is so much uh, excavation uh, 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 report there that shows without any shadow of doubt that there's archaeological proof. Now, Below the site where we're looking at, they found an underground cave. And on the cave, in the center of the cave, there was this large rock. And in the center of the rock, this rock, there was still a perfectly intact baby bones that had been offered as a sacrifice, still in this sacrificial place. Right next door, right around these pillars, uh, McAllister found idols that were dedicated to Moloch, the god Moloch. And I, I don't know if you know, uh, but Moloch is the supreme god of the Canaanites. And he's represented uh, by a serpent, a bronze serpent. And they found many of these bronze serpents at this particular site as an act of worship unto God. So Moloch is the king of the gods. So who do you think the snake god is that is encouraging the Canaanites to murder their babies? Absolutely, undoubtedly. No question about it. So the spirit of Moloch is alive and well today in the abortion industry. It's still being motivated by the spirit of Moloch. Satan is behind it all, killing and destroying all these babies. And this is what was going on with the Canaanites at this time. Okay? So here's all this archaeological proof, burnt bodies, sword bodies, or murdered bodies, decapitated, all that's going on. But all this evidence needed to be interpreted. How do you understand all this evidence? Well, back in 1902, it was a righteous generation, and they turned to the Bible for corroboration. And when they looked at the Bible reports of what was happening and the archaeological discoveries, there was a perfect match. Bones burned by fire, children's bones burned by fire, um, children walking into the fire, decapitated, offered unto the God to the Spirit of Monarch. And so it was incredible archaeological proof. You recall that uh, it is in Deuteronomy, simply read one version from Deuteronomy, one verse, chapter 12 and verse 31. It says, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable or abominable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. 
And so you have totally, uh, total manuscript evidence and physical, archaeological evidence marry perfectly together to, to form the evidence. How they can turn around and say that there is no uh, proof at all today that the, the Canaanites murdered uh, 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 their children is, is absolutely astounding. I'll mention that in a little more detail as we go on and tell you why that has happened. So when Israel came to the Promised Land, God warns Israel not to get involved with pagan worship because it was incredibly seductive. And we'll, we'll get into a little bit of that. But the, the, the Bible encyclopedia actually says the Amorites and the Amalekites uh, were actually synonyms used for the Canaanites. You know, so the, the, the Hivites and the, and the Jebusites and the, you know, all, that, all those guys were technically one nation, Canaanites. So there might have been many tribes. You know, like Scotland has all their lords and um, you know, their, their leaders, their clans but they're all Scottish. In the same way you have the Hivites and, and the, the Canaanites, they all come together under the Canaanite family. So it's really one nation um, that committed these um, terrible acts. Now, did you know that the Bible actually talks about the sacred stones of Moloch? Do you know that's in your Bible? It's referred to in, in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 23, and it reads this. Do not bow down before their gods, or worship them, or follow their practices. Underscore that, follow their practices, because you'll see in a moment how terrible they were. You must demolish and break their sacred stones to pieces. Exodus 23, 23. This is one that got away, and so it, it really helps from an archaeological perspective uh, to understand exactly what the Canaanites were doing. But to complete this picture of why God wiped these people from the face of the earth. Uh, I want to draw your attention to a theologian, an education, educator, Gleason Archer, in his book uh, uh, that he writes, A Survey of the Old Testament. And so he writes, Recent archaeological discoveries show that Canaanite practice polytheism, sexual perversity, homosexuality, incest, and sodomy. Public religious prostitution, male and female, public rites of bestiality, and child sacrifice. This is all delineated in Leviticus 18. You can read about it all, and God says, these things are an abomination. Don't do after these practices. These are what the practices of, of the Canaanites were doing. They were certainly vile sinners, sacrificing their children and behaving in such vile and terrible ways. So, But the question we want to ask is, was God just in ordering their destruction? That's the burning question that Christians need to be able to give an account of. So, we need to understand that the first uh, time that, they, they, uh, that God pronounced judgment on them was nearly 900 years before judgment actually fell. 900 years before the Lord warned these barbaric and, br br barbaric and brutal people um, to repent of their demonic gods, and to turn from their sadistic god, Moloch, who demanded infant sacrifice. I, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, surely their own consciences must have said, no, this is wrong. How can I, how can I sacrifice myself? It's reprehensible. I can't even conceive of, of the question, let alone following the act. It's reprehensible. And yet these people seared their conscience. They did it over and over and over again. And they became callous. And each time it became 
easier and easier to do. If they had repented and sought God's mercy at any time, surely they would have been forgiven, but they never did. I want to tell you, God hates sin, but His love for us exceeds our sin. And that's why Jesus came. Because He loves us so much, He came to die for all our sins. Although His Lord demands judgment for the sinner, His mercy offers us forgiveness. Thank God for that. The consequences of sin is death. But the grace of God is what? Eternal life. God says, if you go down this road, you're going to find death. It's not, there's no good. But if you come to me, I, I will be gracious. I will be kind. I will be merciful. I'll forgive your sins. I will blot out your transgression. I won't remember them anymore. How wonderful. What an awesome God. But you know, the truth is, even though God had spoken uh, 900 years ago and warned the Canaanites of their coming destruction, they didn't receive it. They never repented. So the gift of God's mercy or pardon is freely offered to the whosoever. Anyone can receive mercy and grace. But you know, you've got to receive it for to, to be yours. Amen? Amen? Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. But how many you know not that the whole world is not going to heaven? Mm-hmm. Only those that have accepted the sacrifice of Christ yes. personally and made Jesus our Lord and Savior are going to heaven. But the potential is that anybody and everybody could have come to Christ. But they choose not to go because they want to take charge of their life. Jesus is willing to bear all God's wrath for all sin, for all people in his body. And he died for all our transgression. Those who think God is going to send them to hell should first think that Jesus came and died for their sins so that might never happen. And that's one of the best arguments that we can make to, to those that say that God was unrighteous. In, in judging the Canaanites. No, he wasn't. And as we will go on, we'll see more about what God knows. You know, the truth is that God doesn't send anybody to hell. Amen? God doesn't send anybody to hell. God has made a provision so that nobody needs to go there. We go to hell because we, re- we choose to reject God's gracious offer of forgiveness, of mercy and grace. And we say, no, I'm going to live my life my way. And so we choose to go to hell. God doesn't seem that it's our choice because we turn our back on what he's done for us. God does not wish any to perish. God was incredibly patient and kind with the Canaanites. He loved them. And he wanted them to repent. He did not want to judge them. And that's why God delayed his judgment for such a long time. Because God is not a vengeful, spiteful God. He is extraordinarily loving and patient. Amen. For 900 years, think about it, that's nearly a millennium of ignoring these warnings and their conscience and the consequences. Judgment Day finally fell on these people. Yeah. Contrast the Canaanites with the people of Nineveh. Remember when, when uh, Job went to Nineveh and he, and, and he preached? Uh, the gospel saying God's going to judge this nation because of their wickedness unless you repent. And he didn't want to go because he knew that God was gracious, kind, and merciful. And he knew that if they'd given an opportunity, they'd repent and he'd be a wasted prophet. At least that's the way he thought it. So he goes and he pronounces the judgment and says, unless you repent, what did they do? Immediately, immediately, Nineveh repents. And God stays his hand of judgment. 
when looking at the question of judgment, we should ask ourselves, is it a manifestation of good to do nothing at all when we see evil? It's a good question. You know, if you, what would you think of a policeman who was standing idly by watching a woman get raped and murdered? Or somebody running out of a bank with a ski mask and a bag full of money, and that, and that police officer stands there, which is an ars- the arsonist lighting up a building. We think, that, 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 that's an abomination. That, that, that police officer needs to do something, Amy. At least I hope he would. Yes. <laughs> Not Amy and very well, but... <laughs> but, you know, that was, that was the desire. You know, we think, no, these people need to do something. Um, is a surgeon a good man if he leaves his patient to suffer and die of cancer when surgery could save his life? Could God be considered good if he forbade his people from protecting their families while rapists and thieves broke into their house and destroyed all that was precious? God would not be good if he allowed unbridled wickedness and evil to spread forever. Sometimes action is required. And God intervenes for the safety and the benefit of His people in the same way that a surgeon does. Amen? That's why God took the Amalekites. The judgment of the Canaanites was actually an act of God's love. To prevent the rest of humanity being contaminated by these vile and evil practices. You know, the Lord endured this terrible evil of the Amalekites for such a long time because He was trying to show His people that God... He wanted us to learn and understand that God would much rather show us mercy than judgment. But we see in the Old and the New Testament the dual nature of God. In the Old Testament, we see two important elements of God's nature. First, we see the love of God. In the Garden of Eden, there's just an expression of God's love. And then we see the justice of God. Uh, and and uh, we see these, this, this twin, twin nature throughout uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Both covenants reveal that. And so, although man, God loves mankind, he was, not willing to, he was willing to give his only son to die for us. He will not allow us to continue in wrongdoing forever without judgment. The Old Testament sacrificial system and the sacrifice of Christ in the New both demonstrate God's love and His justice. Make no mistake, it's not popular to preach, but there is a, a day coming very soon when God is going to require the, an explanation from all those that live on planet Earth. Yes. Judgment is coming. And we have an obligation as believers to tell people of the Lord and, and what's going to take place. At the start of this message, I told you that, you know, that the academics are saying that there's no evidence of child sacrifice amongst the Canaanites. How they can be intellectually honest with, and say that is just a mystery to me. Absolutely. I believe it's absolutely deliberate. And despite all this archaeological evidence that McAllister, Dr. McAllister found, uh, Professor Joel Kramer, who is a, a professor of biblical archaeology, when he was doing his degree, when he was in seminary, they taught him over and over again, there is no archaeological evidence to support the fact that the Canaanites ever murdered their people. In the highest schools of learning, this is what they're teaching today. There is no evidence. 
Why? The question must be asked, why are they doing What has changed? The Bible hasn't changed. The evidence hasn't changed. But what has changed is politics. We've become woke. Scholarship has changed. Interpretations have changed. Over time, archaeology has become more and more secular, more and more worldly. And, and, and that's one of the reasons they, they're looking to overturn these biblical interpretations that marry so perfectly with the facts that we find. Because they have a secular agenda, and their agenda is greater than the truth of the evidence that's set forth before their eyes. You know, remember the secular agenda teaches that man is basically good. That's what the humanists are telling us. Man is basically good. You know, if he's doing wrong, it's because he's deprived. He hasn't had the advantages of life. No, there are people that are living in, in the slums who are struggling, who are righteous, who are doing the right thing, even though it's costing them. It's not a case of uh, uh, nature versus uh, nurture. So, uh, that, that's a lie. So, this work agenda is saying, no, you can't do that, you know. Uh, you can't have a bunch of Amalekites running around beheading children, sawing them in half and burning them with fire. It doesn't fit with the work agenda of that, hey, man is basically good. I say man is a sinner capable of the most hideous and most evil things possible, amen? And what does woke mean? It's just a term that, that, that sort of uh, quantifies what these people are doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It's just a term, a basic term for these new age people, if you like. So, okay, so Professor Cameron, when he saw these, uh, in, uh, these interpretations, he said, no, you know, they're now overturning the interpretations of Dr. McAllister and saying, no, uh, we have to find a different explanation, one that's more politically correct. When does political correctness overturn truth? If you lose truth, and we are losing truth in every area of society. When truth is falling in the streets, yeah. you're going to have utter chaos. Yes. And this is what's happening. The, over, the, the, the evidence was there. It lies perfectly with the manuscripts of the Bible. And we can understand what is going on. But no, they have to overturn these interpretations now with something that's more politically correct. kind of reminds me of uh, that proverb, there is none so blind as he who will not see. Yeah. You know, they're doing this deliberately because they want everybody to think the same and perform the same. But we are a called out people, amen? amen. We are different people. We love the yes. truth. We stand for the truth. We've got to make our stand there. Undoubtedly, the Amalekites were terrible, barbaric, brutal people. They were unrepentant. They had seared consciences. And their archaeological evidence is overwhelming that they murdered their children and burnt them with fire. But they were dedicated to serving the serpent god Moloch. And if they had asked for forgiveness, it would have been granted, but they didn't. Folks, this is one I'm going to give you a verse now that I hope that you will mem memorize. Because it's one verse that, that if you're going to tell people about your faith, you need to have this verse in your back pocket. Amen? It's a loaded six gun. When they come after you and say, Ah, but God destroyed these people. And it's found in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. Okay? It says this. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8. The Lord says, If at any time I announce that a nation is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, 
And if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict upon it the disaster I have planned. That's exactly what happened in Nineveh. And it's the answer we need to be able to give to those who say God is unjust. No, God is not unjust. So what the critics don't realize is that from the time of Abraham, when he said that he would destroy these people, there, there was this 900-year period. And again, in Genesis 15, God informs Abraham that he will destroy the Amorites. It's again a synonym for the Canaanites. But not now, because their iniquity is incomplete or not complete. So God is giving these wicked, defiled, and corrupt people plenty of time to repent and to seek His face, but they never do. After a period of protracted warnings without response, judgment finally falls. Given man's uh, fallen nature and his propensity to sin, that his heart is desperately wicked, that he loves darkness more than the the light, I think God was entirely merciful and just in removing the cancer of the Canaanites in order to protect the rest of humanity from their debauchery. God's hatred of sin is rooted in His love for us. His will is always His highest good for mankind. God wants to bless us. We, get that. we, we started with that, we come back to that, and in the middle of it is that. God loves us and wants to bless us. It's only when we stubbornly and defiantly turn our backs on God and go our own way and refuse to repent that judgment falls. God is not angry and spiteful. Instead, He's extraordinarily kind and patient. But God's Spirit will not always strive with man. Their judgment serves as a warning to us that someday this age of grace will come to an end. Folks, I, I, I believe with all my heart that it's going to be very, very soon. I'm going to be looking at a number of prophecies. We're going to have like a prophecy thing uh, next, next week. And um, I'm going to sh- I was so shocked and amazed when, when I was doing some study. I re- really believe we stand on the threshold of the Lord's coming. It is so incredibly close. I believe it's so much closer than most people even understand in Christendom. But we'll look into that for next week. God is not angry and He's not spiteful. Instead, He's extraordinarily kind and patient. But His Spirit will not always strive with us. This age of grace is going to come to an end. And we will have to give an account to Almighty God. Hebrews 9.24 is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment we are accountable for our lives. And what I am just so grateful for Jesus. Amen. I am so grateful for the Lord that He covers my sin. But you know, I must make sure that I'm not walking uh, and abusing the grace that God gives to me. Therefore, the Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know, we need to look at our lives and examine our lives and make sure that we are, are living lives that are well-pleasing to the Lord because He loves us. And if we do that, we will never fall into error. If we stay close to God, we will never be lost. Amen. Amen. Can we bow our heads in a word of prayer? Father God, we come before you and just acknowledge that you are a righteous, holy, and just God. Holding the sinner accountable for their sins. 
Lord, but we know that shall not the judge of the whole earth do right. Lord, you know how to deliver the righteous out of the tents of the wicked. And so, Father, we thank you for the grace of Jesus. We thank you for what he's done. Help us to be, Lord, men and women who live appropriately. Lord, live in grace. Lord, crucifying the fallen nature that we all possess. Help us to live to please you, to honor you, because you're kind and gracious. Help us to be pleasing sons and daughters in your sight. So, Heavenly Father, I believe that you were entirely just and righteous in removing the cancer of the Canaanites from the earth so that the rest of humanity would not be corrupted. We thank you and praise you, Lord, that you, you intervened for, for our good because you love us so much, Lord, that your hatred of sin is rooted in your love for us. And we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you would bless each and every one of us. Lord, help us to live righteously before you. Help us, Lord, to, to repent of the things that are unpleasing or displeasing in your sight. And help us to live in the new covenant, under grace, washed in the blood of the Lamb, that we might be justified and forgiven and receive all your mercy and grace. So, Lord, I just thank you, Lord, for the time that we've been able to share this morning. Pray your blessing upon each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise God. Um, let me give you a few announcements. See if you're ready for um, the, the closing song. Praise God. We just want to say thank you once again to our visitors, to Marjorie Pardue and uh, uh, Chris, where you're with Chris and uh, Lovely.